Father, your word is eternal. It has been spoken by your mouth. It has been written down by the prophets and the apostles. Moshe actually wrote part of your Tanakh. You inspired men to write your word in the Psalms. David is one of the psalmists, but there are a lot of others that are mentioned. You gave them your grace and your peace so that we would have your word readily available to us. Father of all generations that have ever lived on this earth, we're the most blessed in all these various translations, in all these various languages, to know your word, almighty God. It's our heart's desires not to just simply own your word, have it on a book on a shelf that we rarely read, but may we read your word daily, almighty God. May we gain the mind of God by his written word. What he has proclaimed and said, he has already seen come to pass. For he has seen the past, the present, and the future. And that includes our future, almighty God. So, Father, as we walk with you in unity and put our trust in you, trusting in your word is never before, almighty God. May we be truly people of your word, being established in our hearts and minds, that you are sitting on the throne of our lives and we acknowledge your word as yes and true and amen. In Yeshua's name, amen. Now let us turn to Acts chapter 24. This is part three of Acts of Yeshua's emissaries, the Shelachim. And we'll be beginning in verse number 10. Acts chapter 24 and beginning in verse 10. And when the governor motioned for Shaul to speak, he replied, I know that you have been a judge over this nation for a number of years, so... I was glad to make my defense. As you can verify yourself, it has not been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor anywhere else in the city, did they find me either arguing with anyone or collecting a crowd nor can they give any proof of the things which they are accusing me. This I do admit to you. I worship the God of our fathers in accordance with the way which they call a sect. I continue to believe everything that accords with the Torah and everything written in the prophets and I continue to have a hope in God, which they too accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Indeed, it is because of this that I make my point of always having a clear conscience in the sight of God, and of man. So what is taking place here? Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, has been taken 
up to Caesarea, and now he's standing before a judge who is also a procurator, whose name is Felix. He is, there's not a jury here to listen to this case. If you notice in the first ten, nine verses, the high priest hired and sent Tertullus, a lawyer. In today's understanding, he would be like a prosecuting attorney. But in today's court system, you can either go before a judge, you could either have a hire an attorney or have some an attorney appointed to you. But in this case here, Rav Shaul chooses not to have an attorney. He does not send a letter to Jerusalem and say, brothers and sisters, I need your help. I'm between a rock and a hard place. And I need someone with a clever tongue who's able to flatter and by the way, can you take up an offering to pay the lawyer? And if possible, that this Judge Felix rules against me, could you take up an offering so now we can place a bribe before him so that he will release me? Rashul does none of that. He stands before Felix, and he's his own defense attorney. Because he trusts in the Lord, that the Lord is right beside him. Who is our advocate before the Father? When the accuser of the brethren comes, who is Hasatan, and accuses us of something. But Yeshua, he intercedes. He's not only our high priest, our sacrifice that died upon the execution stake and rose from the dead, but he's also our advocate, our defense lawyer. Let's go forward here as we go even deeper. So here is Shaul's defense before Felix. As he responds to each of Tertullus's three points. Number one, during his 12 days in Jerusalem, he incited no insurrection. But what did Tertullus say? Verse 5, let's look at it. We have found this man a pest, and he's an agitator among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Was that not his accusation? Was that not his charge? But what is Rav Shaul's response? As he's standing before Felix, and he's giving his own testimony of what truly transpired. Let's look again at verse 11. 
you can verify for yourself. See, Rav Shaul is asking Felix because he understands. He understands a Roman government and the way that they rule over things. He was to inquire from those who were there what truly took place. And Rav Shaul is speaking very, very boldly here. He's calling now Felix to now, you need to examine this going forward here. You, need, you can verify for yourself, it has not been more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor anywhere else in the city did they find me either arguing with anyone or collecting a crowd. Remember Tertullus's uh, argument, his charge, that this guy was a pest? Wherever he went, he was bringing chaos, confusion, misleading people. So let us go forward here. Number two, his second point. Tertullus's argument. His being a Nazarete, a follower of Yeshua from Nazareth, is no ground for complaint. Let's hear Tertullus's charge in verse 6. He even tried, speaking of Rav Shaul, to profane the temple, but we arrested him. We wanted to try him under our own law which was not the truth. And finally, part three. Rav Shaul did nothing wrong, either in the temple or elsewhere. Finally, the challenges of his accusers to bring against him any charge that will stand up. Nothing so far is standing up. So Shaul raised no commotion in the temple but went, but went on his business quietly in the manner consistent with his purpose of placating, appeasing or pacifying those Messianic Jews who were zealous for the Torah. Remember chapter 21 and verse 20? They said, here are some men who are here to fulfill an oath. Pay for them, for the sacrifice, for them and yourself. And they shaved their heads. They gave this as an offering to the Lord, an act of worship. So going forward here, it would have been counterproductive for Rav Shaul to have done anything, which did not demonstrate that he stays in line and keeps Torah. Going forward here, the way Yeshua established this way. Yeshua said, as recorded in the Gospels, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So where is the way first mentioned in the book of Acts? Let's turn now with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 2. And I'll begin in verse 1. Meanwhile, Shaul, still breathing threats, murderous threats against the Lord's Talmudim, his disciples, went to the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus 
authorizing him to arrest any people he might find, whether men or women, who belong to what? The way. Followers of Yeshua. And bring them back to Jerusalem. Is it only mentioned there? No, let us now look at Acts chapter 18. Speaking of the way. Acts chapter 18, and beginning at verse 25. I'll begin back up in 24. Meanwhile, a Jewish man named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent speaker with thorough knowledge of the Tanakh. This man had been informed about the way of the Lord, Notice he had been informed of the way of the Lord. And with great spiritual fervor, he spoke and taught accurately the facts about Yeshua. But he knew only the immersion of Yohanan, which is John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogues. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained him the way of God in fuller detail. So this is the way that Rav Shaul is representing before Felix. Because this is some 20-some years later that he's now standing before Felix. The message that Yeshua is the salvation of Israel, the promised Mashiach, the Redeemer, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, was not something brand new that Rav Shaul was now presenting during his case before Felix. Going on, verse 27. When he made plans to cross over to Acacia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote the Talmudim there to welcome him. And on his arrival, he greatly helped those through the grace had come to trust he powerfully and conclusively refuted the unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Jews that Yeshua is the Messiah in public, and demonstrating by the Tanakh that Yeshua is the Messiah. See, when you come to the end of the way, what do you have to deal with? The question, who is, who is Messiah? What is Yeshua? Has he died on the execution stake? And has he been raised from the dead? And has he purchased you for the Father by his precious blood? Now continuing now in Acts chapter 19. And beginning at verse number 9. But some began hardening themselves and refusing to listen. When they started to do what? Defaming the way before the whole synagogue. Shaul withdrew and took his Talmudim with him and commenced holding daily dialogues at Tyrannus's yeshiva. Now going further down in, in chapter 19, verse 23, speaking of the way. It was at this time that a major fervor arose concerning the way. 
Now, continuing here in chapter 22, verse 24. We're going to skip that one. Where the way is used in the same technical sense here to refer to the beliefs and practices of Yeshua's followers. The term implies that the way is the right way, the only way to God the Father. Going back here now in verse 14. But to this I do admit to you, I worship the God of my fathers in accordance with the way which they call the sect. Now digging a little bit deeper here about the sect. This implies that his accusers regard this as one way among several ways. But in particular, this is the way they don't like. So Shaul refers back to Tertullus' use of the word sect. And now he neutralizes any negative overtone. Going forward here. I worship the God of our fathers. Verse 14 of Acts 24. This is precisely the response that a present-day Messianic Jewish Jew makes to those who considers him as what? As an apostate. You have forsaken the God of your fathers because now you're following this Gentile, Jesus. Many times is the accusation. You have forsaken your own people. And you have forsaken the God of your fathers. That is the charge that's laid at our feet. So going forward here. The God we worship is the only God. Elihei Evotenu. The God of our fathers. The phrase is found in the first blessing of what? The Amidah. The central synagogue prayer. Likewise, today's Messianic Jew, which Shaul believes that everything that accords with the Torah, as upheld by Messiah. But is that true? Absolutely. Let us now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 21. You know what's fascinating? that most of these books that we're looking to, we're reading from today, were penned by whom? The Apostle Paul, Rav Shaul. So this is all in context of what he'd been teaching for the past 20-some years. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and beginning at verse 21. With those who live outside the framework of Torah, I, who's speaking here, but Rav Shaul, I put myself in the position of someone outside the Torah in order to win those outside the Torah. Although I myself am not outside of the framework of God's Torah, but within the framework of God's Torah, upheld by whom? By Messiah. Going forward here. Galatians 6, 2. Galatians 6, 2. Another book that was written by the Apostle Paul, Rav Shaul. 
Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens. And this way you will be fulfilling the Torah's true meaning, which Messiah upholds. So who's upholding Torah today? Messiah Yeshua. And everything written in the prophets. Rav Shaul said, I worship the God of our fathers and everything that accords with the Torah and everything written in the prophets. That's Acts 24, verse 14. So now moving forward here. Including the prophecies pointing to Yeshua as the Messiah. Now let us look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, a book that was not written by Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, but this proves how these words of God are interwoven together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is Yeshua speaking. Don't you think, don't think, that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophet. I have not come, not as much as a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of this mitzvot and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah, Torah teachers and the Pershim, the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Who's speaking there? But Yeshua himself. Now let us go now on to Luke chapter 24. And beginning of verse 25, Luke 24, 25. This is Yeshua speaking again. He said to them, foolish people, so unwilling to put your trust in everything that the prophets spoke. See, the prophets in the Tanakh and the Brit Hadishah and the apostles did not speak of their own will or accord or their own understanding. It was given to them by the word himself, who is Yeshua, who gave both the Torah and he gave the Tanakh and he gave the Brit Hadashah to us. He said to them, foolish people, so unwilling to put your trust in everything the prophet spoke. So today, my brothers and sisters, are we putting our trust in our nation? What, what Google tells us? what our latest news broadcast tells us? Or do we put our trust in what the prophets that are already written in this canon of scripture from Genesis through Revelation, not the new prophets of today or the new apostles of today, but do we put our trust in these prophets? Yeshua was not speaking of these modern day prophets. He was speaking of those that were prior. Going forward here. 
Didn't the Messiah have to die like this, entering his glory? Then starting with Moshe, Moses, and the prophets, he explained to them the things that can be found throughout the Tanakh concerning himself. You know, Yeshua never spoke on Matthew through Revelation while he was here on earth. He never did. So what prophets is he speaking of? The prophets of the Tanakh. Let's go forward here. Verse 15. And I continue to have hope in the God which they to accept that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a hope in the resurrection. That just as Messiah was raised from the dead, first fruits, so those who die shall also be resurrected. Going deeper, which they too, the Pershim, the Pharisees, but not the Zudakim, the Sadducees. Let's turn to Acts chapter 23, verse 6. Acts 23, verse 6. But knowing that one part of the Sanhedrin consisted of the Zudakim and the other of the Pershim, the Pharisees, Shaul shouted, Brothers, I myself am a parush, a son of the Purushim. It is concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm being tried. See, that was the crux, the main point, why this high priest, members of the Sadducees, wanted to take Rav Shaul's life and end the testimony that Yeshua is the promised Messiah and the King of the Jews. The resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous, only here in Acts chapter 24, verse number 15, that Shaul mentions the resurrection of the unrighteous. So now we're going to end on this. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Have you ever done a study on the resurrection? This is a chapter you need to examine. Now, brothers, I find... I must remind you of the good news which I proclaim to you and which you received and on which you have taken your stand, by which you are being saved. See, what brings us about to being saved is the hope in the resurrection. Undeniable fact that Messiah did raise from the dead. Provide you keep holding fast to the message I proclaim to you. For if you don't, 
your trust will be in vain. For among the first things I passed on to you, which I have also received, namely this, that Messiah died for our sins in accordance with what the Tanakh says. The Old Testament says. And he was buried and he was raised. And on the third day, accordance with the Tanakh, what the Tanakh says, and he was seen by Kepha, who is Peter, then by the twelve, and afterwards he was seen by more than 500 brothers at one time. The majority of whom are still alive. Though some have died, later he was seen by Yaakov, Jacob, then by all the emissaries, the Shelachim, the called out ones. And last of all, he was seen by me, who's speaking here but Rav Shaul. Even though I was born at the wrong time, I am the least of all the emissaries, unfit to be called an emissary, because I persecuted the Messianic community of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I have worked harder than them all, although it was not I, but the grace of God with me. Anyhow, whether I or they, this is what we proclaim, and this is what you believed. But if it has been proclaimed that Messiah has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you are saying there is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Messiah has not been raised. See, that was the, the fact there. That was the litmus test. Could you prove, could you uh, assemble the body of Yeshua the Messiah and prove that he did not raise from the dead? Going forward here. And if Messiah had not been raised, then what we have proclaimed is in vain. Also, your trust is in vain. Furthermore, we have shown up as false witnesses for God in having testified that God raised up Messiah, whom he did not raise if it was true that the dead are not raised. For if dead are not raised, then Messiah has not been raised either. And if Messiah has not been raised, your trust is useless and you are still in your sins. Think about that. All of a sudden today, an archaeologist finds a tomb in Jerusalem and they do a DNA test and they try to prove that this Yeshua, this Jesus, was a fraud. Going forward here. Also, if this is the case, those who died in union with Messiah are lost. If only for this life that we put, have put our hope in the Messiah, we are more pitiable than anyone. But the fact is that Messiah has been raised from the dead and the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a man, also the resurrection of the dead has come through a man. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah, we will be made alive. Are you connected with Messiah today? Are you looking for his appearing so that you can see those that we have placed in the grave whose bodies are now asleep 
shall one day their glorified soul and spirit shall descend with Messiah and immediately shall enter into their bodies and they shall rise up from the dead first. Going forward here. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with Messiah all will be made alive. But each of his own order, the Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to Messiah at the time of his coming. Then the accumulation when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after having put an end to every rulership, yes, every authority and power, for he has to rule until he puts his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be done away with will be death, for he put everything subjection under his feet. But when it says that everything has to be subjected, obviously the word does not include God who himself is the one subjecting everything to Messiah. Now when everything has been subjected to the Son, then he will subject himself to God, who subjected everything to him, so that God may be everything in everyone. Were it otherwise, what would the people accomplish who were immersed on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not actually raised, why are people immersed for them? For that matter, we ourselves, we do keep facing danger hour by hour. Brothers, by that right to be proud with which Messiah Yeshua, our Lord, gives me. I solemnly tell you that I die every day in fighting with wild beasts in Ephesus was done merely on a human basis. What do I gain by it? If the dead people are not raised, we might as well live by the saying, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we will die. Don't be fooled. Bad company ruins good character. Come to your senses. Live righteously and stop sinning. There are some people who lack the knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame, but someone will ask, in what manner are the dead raised? What sort of body do they have? This is the word. Stupid. When you sow a seed, it doesn't come alive unless it first dies. Also, what you sow is not the body that will be, but a bare seed of, say, wheat or something else. But God gives the body he intended for it. To each kind of seed he gives his own body. Not all living matter is the same living matter. On the contrary, there is one kind for human beings and another kind for living matter, for animals, another for birds, another for fish. Furthermore, they are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the beauty of the heavenly bodies is one thing, while the beauty of earthly bodies is something else. The sun has one kind of beauty and the moon another, the stars and yet another. Indeed, each sun, each star, has its own individual kind of beauty. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. When the body is sown, it decays. When it, it is raised, it cannot decay. When sown, it is without dignity. When raised, it, it will be beautiful. When sown, it is weak. When raised, it will be strong. When sown, it is ordinary human body. When raised, it will be body controlled by the spirit. If there is an ordinary human, 
body, there will also be a body controlled by the Spirit. In fact, the Tanakh says, Adam, the first man, became a living human being, but the last Adam has become a life-giving spirit. Note, however, that the body from the Spirit did not come first, but the ordinary human one, the one from whom the Spirit comes afterwards. The first man is from the earth, made of dust. The second man is from heaven. People born of dust are like the man of dust. And people born from heaven are like the man from heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, so we will bear the image of man from heaven. Let me say this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot share in the kingdom of God, nor can someone that decays share in what does not decay. Look, I will tell you a secret. He's sharing something brand new. All of us, not all of us will die, but we will be changed. It will take but a moment in the blink of an eye at the final shofar, for the shofar will sound and the dead will be raised to live forever. And we will be changed for this material which can decay must be clothed with imperishability. This which is mortal must be clothed with immortality. When that decays, puts on imperishability, and what is moral puts on immortality, then the passage in the Tanakh will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where is that a quote from? Yeshiahu, Isaiah chapter 25, 8. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Where is that a quote from? But from Hosea 13, 14. The sting of death is sin, and sin draws its power from the Torah. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. So, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, immovable, always doing the Lord's work, as vigorous as you can, knowing that united with the Lord, your efforts are not in vain. That's Rav Shaul's message on the resurrection. Are you about your father's business? Are you proclaiming the resurrection to others? That Messiah rose from the dead and those that we planted in the ground will also see a resurrection. To God be all praise and glory and honor in Yeshua's name, amen.